This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, welcome to Politics Without the Boring Bits, your political podcast from the Times. You may have noticed I'm still not Matt Chorley. I'm Patrick Maguire, with you for the rest of this week in Matt's absence. No PMQs today, of course. MPs are on whatever jaunt Matt Chorley is. But we're pondering the question of whether it matters anyway. Have you missed it? Will you miss it? Does it even make any sense for politicians to spend every Wednesday barracking the Prime Minister? What do they get out of it? Does it ever make the weather? These are all questions I'm going to ask a panel of experts and those who've done it before in just a moment. But before then, we've got a really interesting discussion between Robert Crampton, Hadley Freeman and myself on everything from the Gaza conflict, orange peels, dating and washing up bowls. The Columnists. Yes, it's Wednesday, so Robert Crampton is here after a prolonged absence. Hi, Robert. (laughs) Hello, Patrick. Fresh from Barbados. Yes. If that's not revealing too much. No, I've written about it, inevitably. Uh, Very good, very good. And Hadley Freeman joins us too. Hi, Hadley. Hi, Patrick. I am not fresh from Barbados. Not fresh from Barbados. Welcome back, Robert. Hi, Hadley. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, you know, you'll get you'll get your trip eventually, Hadley, when you've uh, when you've served as long as Robert on uh, <laughs> on UGK staff. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Reward reward for time served. Reward for time served. Um, Robert, yeah, you've returned from your holiday yeah. to uh, a pretty uh, pretty febrile political environment. Yeah, it's grim. Uh, I thought Tom Peck put it very well in his sketch this morning, where last week we believed that Keir Starmer had changed the Labour Party, and this week. We're not so sure, are we? After the delay in uh, in thinking that this guy could apologise for what he for what he said, Azar Ali, yeah, yeah, uh, it's worth it's worth sort of repeating what the, what this f- fellow actually believes. Uh, he believes that the Israeli government conspired in the massacre of th- uh, twelve hundred of its own citizens. Now, to believe something as nonsensical and as offensive as that, you are. You kind of got to believe anything, and mm. you and you and you've got to, you've demonised that country. Uh, you've and it's the, the the really significant thing about it is in this meeting where this other guy just gets up and says effing Israel as, if that's, Jones, as yeah. if that's any sort of an argument. Nobody uh, seems to have protested, uh, took them up on it, walked out, or anything. That shows that there is a deep 
sense within the Labour Party, which Keir Starmer has not rooted out, of, uh, I would say, anti-Semitism, but you don't even need to go that far in a way. It's just that there's an, a knee-jerk uh, opposition to anything and everything Israel does and what it stands for, and I would suggest it's right to exist as well. Because people talk about, oh, I'm not, anti- I'm not anti-Semitic, but I am anti-Zionist. But if you break that down, all Zionism means is the right of the state of Israel to exist, Yeah. So what you're saying is, if I'm anti-Zionist, then I don't believe in the rights of the state of Israel to exist. So you're saying about 7 million Jews, the population of Israel is about 10 million, about three quarters of whom are Jewish, have got to go and live somewhere else, which to me sort of pretty much defines anti-Semitism. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So, uh, and Starmer took 48 hours to get rid of him. It's not, I mean, there are, yeah, there are difficult decisions to make, as, a, as Danny Finkelstein points out in his column this morning. You have difficult decisions to make. He cites, not in his column, but I've just spoken to him about it now, and he cites the example of Blair getting rid of Mandelson over the Hinduja passport thing. In uh, which, 2001, yeah. yeah. He's his best mate, his chief political colleague and, and advisor and mentor, in a way. Mm. Uh, and it turns out not to be true in the, in the passage of time. But he got rid of him anyway. That was a difficult decision. This wasn't a difficult decision. This guy believes in something mad and offensive. Well, and the Labour Party's initial defence yeah. was he fell for an online conspiracy theory. You don't fall for these things. You, you fall for them if you want them to be true. Yeah? And, but, well, and if you're very stupid. Well, exactly. The defence was, no, this guy isn't prejudiced <laughs> anyway. He's just stupid, you know, which yeah, isn't no, necessarily no, a qualification are, for public office either. No, exactly. You wouldn't want him as an MP anyway, because he's obviously not very bright. But to believe stuff like that, you have to want it to be true. And to want it to be true, you want to think the worst of, a, of a, an entire country, an entire people, about anything, which makes him an anti-Semite, in my view. Hadley, I mean, it's, this has been a, quite the week for Britain's Jewish community, I think. You know, you had not only the stuff in the Labour Party, but you had a comedian, Paul Curry, at the Soho Theatre, oh, yeah. expelling a member of... Uh, a member of the audience who refused to give a standing ovation to the Palestinian flag. I mean, you know, what have you made of all of this? I, and not just that, Patrick. There's been <laughs> the anti-Semitism on Leeds and Birmingham University campuses. Mm. The uh, Jewish chaplain at Leeds has had to go into hiding because he uh, voluntarily served in the IDF and the Muslim Council of Britain uh, called him a war criminal on Twitter and he and his family have been threatened. So they're now in hiding. And yeah, the comedian at the Soho Theatre, I mean... Nothing says comedy uh, show to me than a comedian telling people to stand up for the Palestinian and Ukrainian flags, as this guy did. Like, what a great night out that must have been for the audience. <laughs> and the other amazing thing about that story, so it was this uh, comedian whose name I can't even be bothered to remember, um, threw out an Israeli member of the audience for... Paul, Paul Curry. Mm. Paul Curry, Paul Curry yeah. For refusing to stand for the um, Palestinian flag and then started shouting at him and then other Jewish members of the audience left. The Soho Theatre used to be a synagogue. That's mm. that's the kind of great kicker. I mean, it's like a great trajectory of Britain in a way, like turn the synagogue into comedy theatres and then throw the Jews out. Um, it is upsetting. And um, I thought Danny's column today was so fascinating in so many levels. I mean, the problem for Starmer is that 
uh, the reason he hesitated, I assume, is because he's having problems with the hard left, and the hard left mm-hmm. is anti-Semitic. Um, you know, they won't call it anti-Zionist, but as Danny so brilliantly illustrates in his column today, um, the hard left, starting back with Soviet propaganda, has always disguised anti-Semitism as anti-Zionism. And back in the 60s and 70s, they recruited the Arab countries um, to help do their work for them by saying, you know, Israel is taking work away from you guys. It's encroaching on the Arab countries because Stalinist era Russia and in the immediate aftermath, as well as before, of course, was incredibly anti-Semitic and killed Jewish doctors and killed Jews and all sorts of terrible things. Denny obviously writes about that in his book about his family's experience with the gulags. Um, So this is not a new thing. And because Starmer has had problems with the far left in his party in terms of his reaction to not calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, I think he was trying to tread a middle line here in not automatically chucking out Azar Ali. The problem is, as Robert says, what Azar Ali said is so stupid and so cranky and so obviously anti-Semitic as well as anti-Israel that it had to happen eventually. I mean, what Azar Ali basically said is the same as saying America allowed 9-11 to happen. Mm-hmm. in order to go to war in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And some people did say that at the yeah. time, but were not elected MPs. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it is horrific, and it is very sad, I think, to mm-hmm. be a Jew on the left, as I am, in both the UK and the US, mm-hmm. as I am, seeing these quite once marginal, hard-left, anti-Semitic views going mm-hmm. to the mainstream in the way they have over the past four months. Yeah, I mean, I... Can I say something? Of course, yeah. I went on the anti-anti-Semitism march a couple of months ago in London, and I wrote about it at the time. It's worth repeating, I think. There's nothing that would have logically prevented somebody from Solidarity for Palestine being on that march, yeah? Because it's it's, it's just saying, I don't like anti-Semitism. That's all it was, yeah? But not only was there obviously not anybody from Solidarity for Palestine on that march, there wasn't a single Labour Party banner, there wasn't a single trade union banner. The left was completely absent. I think there was one... Uh, speaker from the cello cabinet. But it was mostly uh, conservative MP, conservative politicians and members of the Jewish community. Uh, mm-hmm. And it seems to, the left has completely lost its moral compass, its moral clarity on the, over the issue of Israel. I mean, it's, this, is a, this is a, whatever you, you can argue, as Danny says, you can argue about the Israeli, what the IDF is, its strategy it's pursuing in Gaza. You can sympathise enormously with the civilian casualties. But the, 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 the there is no analogy between what happened on October the 7th when people were killed simply on the, on the basis of their uh, ethnicity and what the IDF is doing, which is causing a certain number of civilian casualty, uh, casualties in Gaza. Yeah? They're not, those people in Gaza are not being targeted on the basis of being Palestinian or being Arab or being Muslim. Yeah? Whereas the people on October the 7th were targeted purely on the basis of being Jewish. Mm. Well, can I, can I just bring in a couple of listeners here, Robert and Hadley? Because, you know, they're, they're ra- a couple of them are raising questions that I'd be interested to get your take on. Uh, Claude in Westminster says, I normally agree with Robert Crampton, but he's absolutely wrong, as being opposed to Israel's actions in response to the appalling invasion on attack on October the 7th does Mm. not make you an anti-Semite. It's time more politicians called out Netanyahu and his Mm. tactics in Gaza. No, I didn't say that. I don't don't think he does make you an anti-Semite. No, I think this guy, in this instance, the fellow in Rochdale, I think what what he said does tip over into anti-Semitism, it's quite clear. But, but opposing the, as I say, the opposing the reaction, uh, some, some people say overreaction, that, that, I'm, not, I'm not accusing those people of being anti-Semitic, mm. uh, and I never have done. Uh, but what's Israel supposed to do? You cannot live next door, you cannot have that living next door to you. 
Yeah, we wouldn't tolerate it. If that, mm-hmm. you're talking about a very small area, if we had uh, several million people living in, we're in London, in Essex, who hated us and tried to kill us and succeeded in killing 1,200 of us, we would, the, it, it, there would be a response. It would be the government's duty to respond. But what would what would you say? What would you say if, as David Cameron say say you know you talk about Essex or whatever? What if Essex was, in the words of David Cameron, have a long ago an open air prison? You know, there'd be some people who say, look, you know, it's uh, obviously nothing. Ex- would nothing would excuse the people of Essex launching a murderous attack on people from East London? But you know, there there there'd been a long history of occupation. That would be the line some critics of your position would take, Robert. Well, the Israeli occupation ended in two thousand and five. Yeah, uh, and uh, the. The people there, the, the, the Hamas uh, took over from the more uh, more moderate Palestinian leadership, and then proceeded to kill them. Uh, people who didn't agree with Hamas. I mean, Hamas is, is running an essentially a sort of terrorist police state. In I mean, you try criticizing Hamas in in, in Gaza, yeah. Mm. Uh, you try being gay in Gaza, or you try talking about women's rights in Gaza, yeah. So, open air prison. I'd, it's hard. It's it's hard to say. It's an open air prison when it wasn't a very effective one. I mean, some people might say I wouldn't necessarily be one of them, but some people might say it should have the wall should have been higher. Do you know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> uh, I they would. Might say uh, that. I would also add to that to the person complaining about Netanyahu being a war criminal. Yes, of course. And in fact, the Israeli people have been protesting against Netanyahu for the past year, something the hard left did not join them in on. And no one seems to care. And and still, they're basically insinuating that the Israelis have brought this on themselves, being attacked and raped and murdered and kidnapped, simply for A, living in Israel, a part of Israel that has been legally Israeli since 1948, and B, having Netanyahu as a leader when they've been protesting against him for the past year. Secondly, Hamas had been planning this attack for two years on Israel. Did they take any steps to protect their people? No, they did not. They then hid either in Kuwait or in Qatar or wherever they're hiding or within Gaza City, therefore to provoke Israel to attack the people. And Netanyahu absolutely walked into that trap. And Netanyahu is also trying to extend this war for his own purposes Mm. to stay in charge. So to avoid a trial for corruption, like no one is saying Netanyahu Mm. is good. Most Israelis, including my cousins who all live in Israel, know Netanyahu is terrible and they have enormous sympathy for the Palestinians and what they're going through. But the fact is, as as Robert says, Hamas are terrorists. It is in their original charter to commit genocide on Israel, as the Iranians have said too. Israel has never said it wants to commit genocide. Mm. What Netanyahu and his far-right government are now saying is a separate matter and is disgusting. And most Israelis disown it. Um, So I think the different standards Mm. that some people in this country apply to Israel and Hamas is extremely revealing. Mm. of where prejudices lie. And the point is that Hamas don't really talk very much about a Palestinian state. They talk about getting rid of Israel and and, and extending a caliphate across that land. Mm. Yeah? A Palestinian state is a, is a, is a staging post for, uh, for in, in, in the Hamas worldview. Uh, well, I, when I saw the film of the the massacre and the uh, with the the October take, the seventh yeah, yeah, taken from the GoPros of the of the terrorists as they were going about their. The, the massacre, and I don't think I heard the word Israel or Palestine once. 
but I heard the word Jews a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. they were there to conduct a pogrom against Jews. Yeah, they mm-hmm. weren't there to to, uh, to try to uh, further the cause of a Palestinian state. Uh, any reasonable person wants to see a Palestinian state. I've been talking about yeah. a two-state solution for for since I can remember first becoming aware of this issue in my teens. Yeah. Came pretty close to it in the nineties. Came pretty close to it again in the early two thousands, and it was, the, yep. and it, and it was the, uh, the militant, not even militant, but a murderous, I would say, wing of the of the Palestinian uh, uh, cause, if you like, who rejected it, mm. uh, and that's that's at, the, at, at enormous cost to their own people, enormous also, cost to I their mean, own to, people. To to be fair, it was also the militant wing of the Israelis. I mean, yeah. it was a former Israeli well, who assassinated of, of Yitzhak Rabin, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then it was Yasser Arafat after that who scuppered the Oslo Accord. So both sides, and both sides, it should be said, yeah. the extremists in both uh, the Palestinian cause and the Israeli yeah. cause are equally destructive. Yeah, the settlers and so forth, yeah. Because it benefits them to keep a war going. But the only thing I'd say, and I'm sure there are some listeners out there who think, yes, well, Israel has stolen land, it should belong to the Palestinians. There's this huge irony now in the far left saying that, you know, Israel is an entirely occupied country, 75 years of occupation. Mm. fact is, it was created because there was nowhere for Holocaust survivors to go after the war. There were still pogroms going on in Poland, where my family Mm. is from. Um, and for centuries, since Bible times, Jews have been called wandering Jews. They didn't truly belong in this country. There were pogroms in mm. this country when Jews were driven out and killed in Yorkshire, for example, um, in the Middle Ages. And finally, there's a country that's supposed to be the Jewish homeland where Jews can live. And now they're being told they can't live there too. Well, we'll leave that discussion there. Fascinating though it's been. I mean, predictably, we could talk about that for hours and hours and hours. Uh, and Robert, I mentioned you just come back off holiday. Mm. A bit of a sabbatical because you've come back and you're now writing in the paper as our TikTok correspondent. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm just doing a segue from, uh, from Gaza to... From Gaza uh, to, to or- Orange Peel. For TikToks and dating and Orange Peel. Well, yeah, you know. this is apparently... Uh, Big on social media at the moment, it's something called the Orange Peel Test, where it's about the, it's about the uh, largely performed by uh, women putting videos on TikTok of, of, of small favours they're asking their male partners to perform. Uh, one of which is, would you know, would you peel an orange for me? Well, as in, as, if as, I ask you to peel an orange, yes, that would be us. And if I say yes, darling, I will, Patrick, then uh, <laughs> that is a sign of my affection and my uh, essential kind of good nature and my suitability as a long as a potential long term partner. <laughs> uh, and if I say no, then it suggests the opposite. I, th- I think they call that love languages, acts mm. of service. I mean, Hadley, you know, have you, does, uh, you know, do you pass the orange peel test? Do you do these little acts of service? <laughs> well, maybe it's because I don't that I'm divorced. <laughs> maybe I didn't peel enough of his oranges. Um, I would hate for someone to peel my orange, but then I'm one of those neurotic people who doesn't like someone touching their food. So um, the idea of someone's big meaty paws all over my lovely fresh fruit is disgusting. So no, but then that does suggest I'll be single forever. Oh well, that's uh... <laughs> what I was writing. Was it was, it started, it's kind of nice and everything, but it's it starts to become unreasonable because there are some people who say that even if he's dashing out the door on the way to a vital meeting, mm. and she asks him to peel an orange, he has he should then do it or be or risk being considered selfish. And but I said why? that's I said that's what? ridiculous. That's not about talking. That's not about auditioning for a partner. That's about interviewing a servant. <laughs> 
<laughs> Why can't someone peel their own orange? I'm genuinely confused. Because I guess peeling an orange is a, is a, is a bit of a faff. You can get <laughs> juice on you or you can get stung in the eye or you, and you've got to get rid of the rind. And so the idea is that you get somebody else to do it. When's the last time you peeled an orange? For myself or somebody else? For somebody else. That was a while ago. I, cut, I don't peel them. I cut them into segments. Oh. Uh, <laughs> you know, like uh, when you're playing football and you have the, the half the slice of orange on, at half time. On the tray, yeah, 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 yeah. that's what I do. Dates from my days as a, as a not very good footballer. Well, as you in know, you're Rob- always on the bench and always on the bench doing the oranges, yeah. <laughs> but Robert, you did mention an example in your column that I really did relate to, which is when you want to show your partner something on the computer and they say no. That is, I I think that is a really good test because there is something about when you're working from home and you. Yeah. Funny video, like on TikTok, if I was not too old for TikTok. Um, and you want to show someone something and they say later. And you think, yeah. no, I need to show you now. Or if you see, um, a, or if you see a lovely sunset out of the window, as uh, exactly. my daughter did on Saturday exactly. when I was trying to watch the rugby. And she, she was outside <laughs> in the front yard and she knocked on the window, said, look at the sunset, it's, it's spectacular. So I looked and it was. And then it apparently got even more spectacular 10 minutes later. So she knocked again and said, look at it now. And I said... You said go away. I, I said go away. I'm watching the rugby. So that's <laughs> I was covering both covering both bases there. Well, there we go. <laughs> well, speaking of domestic bliss, uh, Tom Whipple, our colleague Tom Whipple, uh, has written in today's paper of an even more contentious domestic debate. Uh, he's finally managed to get rid of his washing up bowl, that bit of plastic that sits in the sink, uh, doing not particularly anything of use. I beg to differ. Well. I'm just going to bring in an expert, the Clean of Queen from ITV's this morning, Lindsay Crombie. Lindsay, can you make a defence of uh, the washing-up bowl for us? I can. I love the washing-up bowl. So, number one, most of us have nice sinks these days. and We don't want them to be stained or scratched. So the washing-up bowl is going to protect those for us. If you're washing nice glasses, you don't want to just chuck them into a sink where you could potentially damage them or scratch them. So, again, the washing-up bowl comes into use. We use less water when we use a washing-up bowl. Honestly, the list is pretty endless. You can fill it up, carry it to a different area in the house. You can do a bit more cleaning, take it to your worktops. And I think when you walk into a kitchen and you just look down a sink and you just see the plug hole that sometimes might smell or whiff the washing up bowl just makes that area look so much more attractive especially if you get a nice bright colored one obviously mine's pink hadley thoughts i have to be honest i'm with tom i've never understood the washing up bowl at all it just seems like this big plastic tub that accumulates loads of scum but maybe that's maybe that that probably shows that i am not very very much not the queen of clean uh me uh well no me neither certainly not uh and you know my washing up bowl is usually full of pretty fetid water uh robert oh i am the queen or the of clean. <laughs> you're the you're the, the non-gender prince, specific the moniker, the high priest of clean, yeah. I yeah. use it to soak the cat's food bowls before they go in the dishwasher. <laughs> what? And then and then wash so your because own, the dishwasher. Oh, you've got a dishwasher. If, if it goes in the dishwasher with the ingrained food, cat food on, it doesn't come clean. So what you do is you you pre-soak them in the washing up bowl for half an hour, mm. give them a little <laughs> scrub, then they go in the dishwasher. But you then don't wash your own cutlery, crockery in the same washing up bowl you're no. covered in cat food. No, no, I don't. But it's useful to have that as a sort of preliminary stage. It's also useful to uh, fill with warm, salty water and soak your feet in whilst you're watching the rugby on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> and that's not, not, that's not too much And not listening to people trying to get you to look at the sunset. There's one every <laughs> night. Get over it. Uh, Mike on the text says, Patrick, what does Tom Whipple do with his finest bone china or his unmentionables that need a good soak? He exactly. needs a washing up bowl. Lindsay, 
is Tom Whipple making a grave mistake on that front? No, no, I think, you know, as long as you clean it afterward, what's the, what's the problem? I mean, I've got two washing up bowls in my house. I genuinely like them. But what I do find is um, people in other countries, I mean, the UK are big on washing up bowls. Other countries are always like when they see it on like my socials, they're like, why have you got this bowl in your sink? So I think it's quite a unique thing to us here, which I, I do find quite strange. There you go. Put that on the citizenship tax. Final word from you, Robert. Also, you want to rinse... If you want to rinse the stuff after... Sorry, I'm eating a love heart. Somebody just put them on the desk. What's, what's it say? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm sorry, I ate it. Uh, can't see what the next one says. It says, marry me. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I, uh, you, you soak them in there, and then you can... Because you've still got the extra bit of sink adjacent to the washing up bowl, you can then rinse, the, oh. rinse them. Yeah. That was Robert Crampton and Hadley Freeman on, well, just about everything. You can read them both on just about everything in The Times and Sunday Times. Every week, just pick up a copy of either paper or head to The Times website and get yourself a digital subscription. Up next, what's the point of PMQs? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. Now, usually at this time on a Wednesday, we'd be gearing up for Prime Minister's questions. It's one of the few chances... We get to see Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer debate the key issues head-to-head each week. Indeed, it's the only chance, and perhaps the only chance, we'll get before the election if reports about the Labour Party not wanting to agree to -to head-to-head debates are true. Now, it's not happening today as Parliament is away on half-term recess. Don't call it a holiday. But what actually is the point of PMQs? Are you going to miss it? What do we actually learn about the values and policies of the people governing our country? Or is it just a circus? A hard-won credibility, which we wouldn't have if we listened to the muttering idiot sitting opposite me. He thinks he's Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) The truth is he's Jabba the Hutt. He spent most of his time prosecuting journalists and failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile, as far as I can make out. I didn't receive a proper answer then. Maybe Dodgy Dave will answer it now. Weak, weak, weak. He's not a leader, he is a human weather vane. Last week I was in Brussels meeting with uh, heads of government and leaders of European socialist parties. 
one of whom said to me, put on a proper suit, do up your tie and sing the national anthem. Now, those were some of the more memorable moments for PMQs in recent years. Forgettable, if you're some of the politicians mentioned. Good, bad, ugly. And a little bit later, we'll speak to two former party leaders in Ian Duncan Smith and Vince Cable about how politicians should best approach it and whether it really ever makes the weather. But I'm joined now by Jane Garvey, who comes on this programme every week, alternating with Fig Lover, of course, with Matt Chorley for PMQ's pre-packed where she says what she would ask Rishi Sunak, were she Keir Starmer? And then Matt goes on their show for PMQ's Unpacked, Unpacked, <laughs> where Matt explains what Keir Starmer actually asked. Yeah. Hi, Jane. Hello. Um, and, sorry, go on. Well, I don't do very well, Asher, but anyway, Well, you I know, try. neither does Rishi Sunak, some people would argue. <laughs> uh, I'm also joined by Time Sketch writer Tom Peck, who has sat through many more sessions of PMQ's than is healthy. And your job, you are literally employed. That's how you put food on the yeah, table. Yeah, God, how depressing when you put it like that. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it has its moments, but I would say they are few and far between. In, in my decade of doing it, you've probably just rattled through all of the good bits, basically, in your one-minute clip. Nobody, and no, yeah, nobody remembers. Uh, uh, nobody remembers most of them. I mean, Jane, you've been following PMQs more closely on this station than you necessarily were before. What have you learned? Well, um, I think I now know that we are not in a golden age of PMQs. Sunak versus Starmer is not in the top ten. I disappeared down a strangely compelling YouTube PMQ's rabbit hole <laughs> first thing this morning. There's some cracking stuff there. I mean, do treat, if you're as sad as me, do treat yourself and have a look. Um, we don't learn a great deal. I know that uh, Matt Chorley is incredibly frustrated by the quality of this incarnation of PMQ's. It's not good, is it, Tom? This isn't one of the classic uh, gladiatorial, adversarial well, it's definitely duos. Not- it's definitely not one of the classics, but I've been on the scene since 2015 and I wouldn't say this is the lowest point we've ever had by some well, what's margin. What's the lowest? Oh my God, the, May versus the, Corbyn. the May Corbyn years. Good grief. I mean, you know, like people, Gordon Brown once admitted out of office, didn't he, that he, he would start preparing for PMQs by like sort of Monday morning because he was so terrified of it. I would say by noon on Thursday in those years, I was already on edge trying to think about what on <laughs> earth I would say the following week. Because they about, were both equally bad. Just total. Well, they're just total fun sponges as people, both of them, aren't they? I mean, that's not that's not necessarily to insult either of them. And I think you know, remembering those years for for much of that period, they were hated by their own party. So, what makes PMQ so watchable in the chamber is the sense of noise and adversarial thing. Actually, a lot of the time, Jeremy Corbyn would get up and deliver six questions and about three Labour MPs would be cheering. Mm. Yeah, well, that was true, actually. When I arrived, it was complete silence behind him for years. And that was the only one that I'd really known because I only started covering it in the Corbyn years. And then, bizarrely, maybe three months ago, I can't remember exactly why, but Rishi Sunak came in to a, to a background of complete silence. And there was a PMQs maybe three months ago where he comprehensively lost. And it was the first time I've ever known like the sort of what I would describe as the Corbyn silence, having transferred mm. to the other side. Uh, what, have you learned anything watching Starmer and Sunak, Jane? Honestly, I, I don't think I have. Um, it's partly because we sort of know every single week what's going to be said by which of them, although I've tried to predict it and I don't often get it right, so I'm contradicting myself here. I, I yearn to be surprised by one of them. Um, if they just come up with anything, either of them, 
anything approaching genuine uh, genuine wit or insight, I would be blown away. But, I mean, as far as I'm aware, that hasn't happened. Neither of them are are really particularly fleet of foot in in verbiage, as far as as I can make out. I mean, I was watching uh, clips of Margaret Thatcher admittedly in her pomp and I think it was only televised in the last year of her premiership or yes that it last, was yeah 89 and obviously the woman had been doing the job then for a decade in 89 and she was so at ease and just swatted people to one side in a, a completely magisterial fashion which I'm not sure we've seen since but I could be wrong Tom um well not not from those two I mean Boris Johnson sort of had his moments when he had his sort of lines that he loved stored up, but a lot of them were much lamer than people remember, like calling Keir Starmer Mr. Crasheroonie Snooze Fest, and he used to talk about him being an an Islington lawyer in an Mm. Islington suit or something, these sort of lines that don't really make any sense, but for some reason you remember them. Um, The the thing about Sunak, right, is he is Prime Minister, and he has got where he's got, because at the start of the pandemic, he actually had that rare thing, which was to appear and be one of those politicians which Cameron had as well, mm. which was to make you genuinely feel like they were on your side. And he was quite... Um, uh, he, was, he, he had a large amount of empathy about him. And when he sort of talked about how, you know, I'm doing the most, but I can't pay everybody's wages, I can't do any more, I'm trying my hardest, he was good at that stuff. But that is completely different skills. And when he has to try and... You know, he's about four foot tall and tries to be the sort oh, of the, bu- the, the bully, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't really work when he's standing at the dispatch box trying to be the sort of alpha male bully he just it's just not in his nature and in both, his both sides are after it's a clip fest isn't it this now um it, little more than that really they just want a couple of uh, i don't know 25 seconds they can stick on the socials exactly yeah well, uh, well here's an, here's an example of that i mean we're talking we'll, we'll mount a defensive pmqs in just a moment let's take a look at what you cited tom as an uh, of pmqs and it's worse this is a clip of jeremy corbyn questioning Prime Minister Theresa May during the Brexit negotiations in 2018. So far, all we've had is waffle and empty rhetoric. (laughs) Businesses need to know. People want to know. Even her backbenchers are demanding to know. But it isn't clear from today's exchanges this government isn't on the road to Brexit, Mr Speaker. It's on the road to nowhere. Now, that's not a question, is it, Tom? And you say this is what you call shouting for the clip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that was... And it's, it is, I don't know whether or not it's Corbyn's fault because just the information ecosystem changed about that time too. And he, and he was quite good. His social media gang were quite effective. Mm-hmm. And they clearly worked out that the point of this thing was to clip up the question for social media and the answer doesn't matter and like in the whatever you were watching in your grand tour of pmq's past jane yeah. i suspect most of it was because through ingenious questioning they completely exposed the prime minister on an area of policy for which he was he re- must have realized he was out of his depth had no answer and he's left flailing whereas these days it's what can i shout and, th- and then they clip it up on social media and the answer doesn't even get a look in there was something about the exchanges between Margaret Thatcher and Neil Kinnock that at least had passion, and they were both articulate. They were both. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was funnier than I remembered, uh, and he also could could deliver a line uh, pithily and, and get it out there. Um, and honestly, they both seemed completely majestic relative to what what served up most Wednesdays. Yeah, now. for well, sure. It, as you say, articulate uh, articulation, eloquence. I think 
it's almost a bigger issue with the declining standard PMQs is that, and, and you'll know this better than anybody, Tom, sat from the gallery, you're not watching people deliver speeches or speak in any meaningful way. They are reading off pieces of paper, off iPads, their phones, mm. in a sort of halting, pretty inarticulate, you know, nervous fashion. And you can make lots of diagnoses about why that is. You know, it's not just a room full of public schoolboys anymore, but it has lost something, hasn't it? Yeah, well, like, I mean... Whenever Tony Blair... Tony Blair always still talks about it as the most frightening thing he ever had to do. And I imagine facing William Hague probably was quite frightening. But William Hague often talks about his strategy was that he would... The Conservatives would go into their uh, office and they would come up with some old bit of news from a few years ago or, or some area of policy in which they were exposed and maybe Tony Blair didn't even know about it. And then they would just drop it on him and he would be... Oh, my good, He would be completely found out. I mean, that happened a few times. Whereas these days, I imagine what Team Starmer are doing are sort of sitting around thinking, well, these are the reasons Sunak's in big trouble this week. These are all the terrible headlines he's had. Mm. How can we think of a pithy way of articulating it as opposed to how can we expose wh where he is exposed? Well, it's important to say PMQs is not completely ineffective and completely useful. Uh, useless. It's Freudian slip there. Uh, <laughs> I want to play this clip from December 2021. This was... Labour MP Catherine West asking Boris Johnson what sounded like a very straightforward question about lockdown parties. Prime Minister, tell the House whether there was a party in Downing Street on the 13th of November. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, no, but I'm sure that in, in whatever happened, uh, the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. And in that moment, Jane, Boris Johnson's uh, die was cast. Yeah, well, uh, do you know, I've got an interesting fact here. Ooh. Of all recent Prime Ministers, guess which one dodged PMQs the most? Go on. Boris Johnson. Really? He only turned up 63% of the time. That's interesting. Rishi Sunak, I, I would have thought Rishi Sunak was already worse than that, no? Apparently not. Wow. No. Tony Blair was the highest attender. I think he did something like 95%. So I don't think... I mean, I don't know. Did you, did you think Boris Johnson was good at PMQs? Um, I, it's hard to tell because Boris Johnson's premiership did not last very long and it was in two sections. One was COVID, where he was really exposed because he was handling it very badly and Keir Starmer essentially acted as, as a, quite literally as a prosecutor. He, was, he just sort of prosecuted the failures of the government. And, and during that time, PMQs, as we heard from that clip of Catherine West, makes news, it makes the weather, it, it forces the Prime Minister to say things that turn out to be untrue, and it's a reminder that it's one of the few opportunities ministers, backbenchers, sorry, backbenchers rather than ministers, of course, get to directly question the Prime Minister on anything. Well, what was really interesting about that Catherine West clip, and I will answer it in a slightly roundabout way, is that my favourite Prime Minister's questions instant ever, by far, ever, was when um, Jeremy Corbyn sat down and mouthed the words stupid woman about oh, Theresa May. I was in the chamber this one. I was in the and chamber I don't, this one. And I don't think anybody in the House of Commons knew, I certainly didn't know, but somebody on social media or had watched it on TV and had clipped up this thing. And, and then, bef But before he, Prime Minister's questions was even finished, um, the deaf percussionist Evelyn Glennie is elsewhere on the radio talking about something completely different. And they've shown her this clip. She's an expert lip reader. Mm. And she says, no, he definitely says stupid woman. So that is being put to, in, it put to Jeremy Corbyn in the House of Commons. John Burko is expected to referee it. And by the end, you've got like, Matt Hancock and, um, and Patrick McLaughlin were sort of surrounding John Burko, like waving their phones at him, yes. like sort of John Terry and Didier Drogba <laughs> in their absolute pomp. But the, but the point about that Catherine West thing is that happened because I think Dominic Cummings tweeted about 
this party on November the 13th. Mm. And various political journalists then tweeted, um, if anybody's got a question left, why don't they ask this? And Catherine West did. And so it's through that weird, um, like, prism, if you like, that you can exert immense pressure on, on whoever is prime minister. And that had massive consequences. And if, and if they're not getting up every week, boring though it may be, it likes Keir Starmer. There is no PMQs this week and Starmer's not having a very good week, so he's very lucky. Mm. And if it wasn't for PMQs, their lives would certainly be a lot easier. Well, I think it's a score draw for is PMQs awful or can PMQs occasionally be useful? I, I have to say, I don't want to deride it at all. I mean, I, I'm really glad we have it. Yeah, sure. And I'm, I'm actually now really interested every week to genuinely listen to it properly. Mm. But you do, I mean, there, there are endless lines that are and cons- concepts that are fairly consistent and are repeated a lot. I found a clip from 2017 where Theresa May said to Jeremy Corbyn, I've got a plan and he doesn't have a clue. Well, let's bring in the former Tory party leader, leader of the opposition uh, under Tony Blair, Sir Ian Duncan-Smith. He faced Blair at Prime Minister's Questions between 2001 and 2003. Sir Ian, good morning. Good morning. What was the point of PMQs as you saw it? Because... You know, let's take ourselves back to 2001. The Conservatives have just lost a second consecutive election. Labour have won another big majority. This is one of your only chances to get in front of the country and, and land some blows on the on the PM, isn't it? Well, yes and no. The honest truth is that I don't think that Prime Minister's questions, one way or the other, has ever moved the dial of political opinion. It's beloved of... Uh, of uh, correspondents uh, yeah. and people in the media uh, and you know and backbench MPs set great store by what happens rather like you might with your you know gladiatorial combat in a way but in truth um, it's 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 actually not that old really if you think about it, it only dates back to the I think the 50s yeah indeed invented Churchill never had to face a prime minister's questions as far as I can recall um, and in a way um, the expectation is so great uh, on what might happen each week. I mean, it was always a way of either sending your troops home feeling quite up or they would go home feeling a bit down, depending on what happened. But most of the public hasn't watched it, hasn't listened to it, and certainly didn't pay it a huge amount of attention. You used to find that when you go out knocking on doors, talking to people, they don't very rarely refer to uh, to Prime questions, unless, of course, they're political aficionados, in which case they're... Uh, they are in a very small, narrow category of people, like politicians, really. So it, it has its moments. It's a very difficult format uh, for the leader of the opposition, no question at all. The, the cards are genuinely stacked in favour of the government because the Prime Minister has the last word, uh, he has the last answer, uh, he has a great stack of, of uh, go-to facts, which uh, if he's got enough time or she's got enough time, they will, uh, they will fish out and then give a whole series of... Uh, answers. And then, you know, the opposition leader has to know the answer that's going to come, not just on one question. Everybody can ask one question and wait for one answer, but then you have to ask another question on the same subject that follows on, knowing that the answer is going to be this, and then gambling the answer will be something else on the third question. Uh, one of those goes wrong, and there's not a hole big enough for you to climb down into at the dispatch box. You're very exposed. How long did it take you to prepare? Did you find that it was a use, uh, a waste of time that could have otherwise been more productively used, I don't know, campaigning in the country, coming up with, with big ideas, that sort of thing? Um, no, I mean, it was important. It's important to do it properly. It was, uh, 
took a while to get used to the idea of it. it nothing you do in politics prepares you for standing at the dispatch box at Prime Minister's Questions time. Uh, everything is moving so fast when you're at the dispatch box, not like a normal debate, not like a set of normal departmental questions. Um, you know, you have literally seconds, split seconds, to decide what you're going to say. And if you pause, some wag in the chamber intervenes with something that makes your question fall apart. So it's um, nothing prepares you for that. So you must prepare to at least know what the ins and outs of the question you're going to ask and where could it go if you get it wrong. It's very important to know that you, if you ask a question and he doesn't or she doesn't answer that in the way that you hoped or expected them to do, then where do you go if that answer? So most of the opposition time is spent trying to figure out where the prime minister will go on an answer to a question, whether you can tie them up and make them look foolish. And there are certain techniques you begin to realise work and some that don't. Which, which, which techniques uh, don't work? Uh, techniques don't work. If you never go to the uh, Prime Minister on a subject that they know very, very well mm. and they have command of, I found with Tony Blair, because he'd been Shadow Home Secretary, he normally had answers on home affairs. So if you went there and you weren't quite right on something, he would very quickly correct you and make you look like you didn't know what you were talking about. Did you ever feel that you nailed Blair? There were a couple of times, a few times when you think you got him. Towards the latter stages, I thought he was looking more... Uh, fragile, particularly during the Iraq war process when he was sucked into other areas and I don't think was preparing quite the same way for Prime Minister's questions that he had done before. Um, I think the trick was, and I think William Haig found this as well, that if you, you've got a, essentially under the new format six questions in a row, possibly you can ask them. So if you ask them questions to get an answer and they have to go and you do it quickly, they have to search their books to find the answer. Mm. They can't find it. They come up and they say something and then you say, well, the answer is this. Uh, so you don't know that. Let's try this one. So you tug him along a series of questions where he can't quite find the answer, makes him look like he's not in command of his brief. That that was one moderately successful way of doing it, making him look bad. But generally, as I say, the Prime Minister almost always had uh, the cards stacked in their favour because last question and a full briefing uh, from the civil service, which you didn't have as leader of the opposition. So being prime minister, um, you have, at least you start with an advantage. Of course, there are moments when prime ministers get caught out completely. Uh, and that's when uh, it looks really bad. But generally, as I say, most constituents don't watch prime minister's question. Well, you know, it's a tough gig, nonetheless, for leader of the opposition's uh, Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, as you know, better than anyone. Thank you very much for joining us. So that's one theory that Prime Minister's questions, more often than not, not noticed by the voters, doesn't really make the weather or shape perceptions of politicians. And that's a leader of the opposition saying it. That's a former leader of the opposition saying it. Someone with six questions. Imagine having only one. You know, that's the lot of most uh, MPs who aren't part of the main exchanges. So if you're not the leader of the opposition, how can you still make a splash? Well, in 2007, the then acting leader of the Liberal Democrats, Vince Cable, landed this blow on Gordon Brown. The House has noticed the Prime Minister's remarkable transformation in the last few weeks from Stalin to Mr Bean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm delighted to say Sir Vince joins us now. Hello, Vince. Hello, hi, good morning. Good morning, good morning. I mean, is that the exception that proves the rule, that very famous line of yours that I believe you came up with uh, in the bath? You know, the PMQ so seldom cuts through or makes the weather 
until someone uh, drops a bomb like like that one? Well, I, I had two questions, and that was actually rather important. If you're the third party, which was the Lib Dems uh, then, and recently the Scottish Nationalists, you 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 do get a chance to make an impact because you can soften up the the Prime Minister with with the first question, and then you've got something in reserve. If you're if you're just an ordinary backbencher, and I, I was when I was leader of the Lib Dems, you you have in my case I had one question every four weeks. I mean it was hopeless, um, and actually what most backbenchers use Prime Minister's question for is some. Uh, rather stylized um, statement they want to make on behalf of their constituency or some cause they've taken up and they video it and then send it around social media. It's it's uh, uh, it, it, it's not debate. Um, uh, so I think my case was was a bit exceptional, um, and I was dealing with the prime minister who, for all his uh, admirable qualities, wasn't terribly quick on his feet. Um, I think from the point of view of the public, it's the exchange between the Prime Minister and leader of the opposition which interests them. Um, and most people are not terribly interested in politics, but if you have some a very good exchange, uh, it carries on the evening news. It does, I think, probably have a lasting impact, but that depends on the individuals. And uh, some Prime Ministers have been very effective at PMQs. Cameron was very smooth. Uh, Blair equally is sort of very polished, professional. Uh, some leaders of the opposition have, I think, really cut through. I think, from my recollection, William Hague was by some way the most effective because he was extremely witty uh, and very sharp. Um, but it depends on them. It depends on the speaker. Mr. Burko always wanted to dominate the proceedings himself. <laughs> Lindsay Hall's going the same way, I have to say. Yes, and Michael Martin, he just let PMQs go on forever and it lost its sharpness. So a lot depends on the participants. But it's it's actually a very good um, advertisement for British democracy. A lot of foreigners point out that there are very few countries in the world where they, the leader of the government exposes themselves to the potential for damage and criticism in that way. Well, there you have it. PMQs does matter, but not necessarily in the way that you think. Thanks to Tom Peck, Times Parliamentary Sketchwriter, my Times Radio colleague, Jane Garvey, Ian Duncan-Smith, former Tory leader, and Vince Cable, former Liberal Democrat leader. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits. In the meantime, make sure you like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts from. And this Valentine's Day, why not enjoy it with a special someone? I'll see you tomorrow. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.